Far from being a modern internet crackpot idea, hollow earth theory has walked a long and winding path many centuries old. From the mythological pits of hell to the pseudo-scientific theories of the Enlightenment, right through to modern science fiction, founding philosophies of utopian cults and even tenuous links with the Nazis, the proponents have been many and the theories varied. Though whether or not they were ever anything other than crackpot is a different question altogether. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories, Season 6, Episode 15. I'm Ben, as always. It's really good to be back on the mic. This week we've got a really great episode, and I don't think I have a lot to introduce at the start here. I I think we pretty much can go straight into it. So yeah, anyway, it's good to be with you, as always. This week's episode is... The Bizarre History of the Hollow Earth In a mountain range far to the east, a stone stairway cut down through the rocky landscape, carving a path for thousands of miles to a series of seven huge iron gates, each resting in a frame held by a large lock that hung listlessly from the bolt jutting firmly into the stone grey wall. Through each gate, A path led to a shadowy, endless cavern, watched over carefully by the feline eyes of a great lion whose mane rested on the shoulders of a man. The strange, oversized figure curled its fingers around the bolt of the gate, wrenching it open as the souls of the dead approached. The claws of its giant bird feet scratched great gouges into the sand as the weight of the iron pushed back against its huge body. Inside the gates, thousands of miles beneath the earth's surface, a great community of human-like creatures, souls of the dead covered in a blanket of feathers, shuffle around in the shadows, their desert-like home immersed in a perpetual darkness that retreats only for a few moments each day as Utu, the god of the sun, passed overhead to prepare for the sunrise, illuminating the sandy ground and lighting up the diamond-like surface of the underworld lake below the palace of Ganzir that perched on the horizon. For the luckiest, who still had descendants alive in the overworld, libations poured into a clay pipe would funnel the liquid down into their grave and allow the souls to drink, which provided a brief respite, at least, from the usual intake of dry dust. Mingling amongst the souls, the child devourer, Lamashtu, dragged his bird-like feet across the ground, his long fingers hanging by his side, blood dripping from the fingernails onto the ground below, whilst the wind demon, Pazazu, soared in the darkness above, the beating of his great wings pulsing above the crowds. This was Kerr, the ancient Mesopotamian underworld of the Sumerians, a place deep inside the earth where the souls of the dead went to stalk through the afterlife. Horrific as it sounds, it is just one example of the nightmarish underworlds that have existed for centuries across cultures, religions and civilizations deep beneath our feet. For the ancient Egyptians, Duat is the realm of the dead, where souls wandered towards Anubis, who would weigh their hearts against the feather of Mart, an important test in the afterlife, the outcome of which would grant one access to the underworld forever, or see them eaten by Amit, the devourer of souls. In Greek, Hades, crisscrossed by great rivers and streams, was governed by Minos, Radamantus, and Achus, 
the judges whose rules decided the law of the land and whose judgments hung over the heads of every soul that made their way across the river of Archeron. In Japan, the Buddhists described the realm of Jigoku as an underworld deep beneath the surface of the earth, where the Lord of Death, Enmadayo, examined the dead to uncover their sins with the aid of the disembodied heads of Mirume and Kaguhana, whose eyes were able to discern any hidden sin or dark secret that a soul may have tried to conceal in order to gain a favourable sentence in one of the many regions of the underworld. Hindu texts wrote of the underworld of Naraka, a hell where the souls of sinners were tormented for their misdeeds before being reborn. Much like Jogoku, equally made up of several regions, each a specialist district for their particular sinners, a theme repeated again in the Christian realm of hell, the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The idea that the interior of the earth is hollow and inhabited more often than not by the tormented souls of the dead, is one that has existed for centuries, dating back almost to the origin of human existence itself. Almost every civilization and culture can tell a story or two that relates to the concept of an underworld, and the examples already stated are just a handful of the many hundreds of varied names given to such places. For thousands of years, they were always considered the places of myth or legend, places well distant from our reach, at least whilst we are alive. It took until the 17th century before scientists would seriously stop and consider that they were walking around on something and that that something had to have had something else inside it. Even in the 17th century, it took a bold pioneer to ask the question of what it might be publicly and an even bolder one to suggest it may be a location that we could actually visit, which is exactly what happened when in 1692 an English astronomer published his theory in order to try and explain anomalies found when navigating across the globe via a compass, opening the door for a slew of pseudo-scientific theories that would shift ancient mythology into the realm of Enlightenment-era scientific curiosity and beyond. A keen astronomer, Edmund Halley was born in 1656 and spent most of his academic life studying the stars. During his student life at Oxford, he travelled to St Helena in the South Atlantic in order to map the southern stars, returning to college triumphant to collect his master's degree, picking up his fellowship at the Royal Society along the way. Becoming interested in the concept of comets orbiting the sun, a theory that was at the time, if not quite controversial, very much a work in progress, with many people still convinced that they were carving a straight path through the solar system, just as they did the night sky. After collecting witness data on a pair of comets that had passed through the sky in both the 16th and 17th centuries, Halley theorised that they were in fact a singular object on a 76-year orbit and he even suggested that it would return and be visible from Earth once more in 1758. Whilst waiting to see if his prediction would come true, Halley turned his attention elsewhere, building a diving bell and testing it, diving to 60 feet and spending over an hour breathing air that had been pumped into weighted barrels and sunk down to the chamber where he and five of his colleagues were crossing their fingers. He also presented a diverse collection of papers to the Royal Society, from the subject of gravity and planetary motion to the behaviour of compasses during navigation. In 1691, he presented a paper to the Royal Society concerning his theory and what it was that was causing magnetic anomalies to appear on the surface of the Earth a phenomena that he had witnessed and documented extensively. Working from erroneous figures originally put forward by Isaac Newton that estimated the density of the Earth relative to the Moon, 
Halley concluded that it was the distinct possibility that the interior of the globe was a huge cavity. Not satisfied with leaving the theory there, he went further, deciding that the world was home to four magnetic poles, two southern and two northern, and further, that the hollow cavity inside the Earth was filled with a second, smaller sphere with its own two poles. As this inner sphere revolved within our own Earth, the magnetic poles would bend and warp the magnetic fields picked up by compasses on Earth's surface, thus explaining the anomalies. He didn't stop there, though. If there was one sphere inside our own Earth, then why not another one inside that one too? In fact, why not three? Each sphere of this Russian doll-like structure was divided, he said, by 500 miles of crust and another 500 miles of air that the inner sphere revolved within, all held in place by gravity citing the rings of Saturn as proof of such a possibility. If his theory seemed far out so far, then strap yourself in, as Halley also concluded that the interior spaces would undoubtedly be inhabited. At the time, the philosophical outlook of most scientists was from a teleological perspective. Nature teemed with life. If there were birds in the air, fish in the sea, and reptiles and humans on land, then why would there not be creatures utilising this inner space too? How the inner spaces were lit is another question altogether, and Halley didn't profess to have all the answers. There are, he said, many ways of producing light, which we are wholly ignorant of. Halley's ideas may seem pretty out there. In fact, even he admitted as much. But they were actually fairly tame when it came to life inside the Earth. Some 60 years before Halley had been up in front of the Royal Society, proposing his concentric spheres, Athanasius Kircher, a German Jesuit polymath with an eccentric bent, had given it his own particular type of attention. A keen natural scientist, Kircher had already put forward theories on fossils, suggesting the large bones were of an extinct human-like race of giants, dragons and demons. In an early, somewhat surreal version of evolutionary theory, he had noted the similarities between species of certain animals and believed it may have been possible for one animal to become another based entirely on their location. When a deer was placed into a colder climate, he reckoned, it could feasibly turn into a reindeer. In the 1630s, he turned his hand to the interior of the earth after he had journeyed into the crater of Mount Vesuvius to have a look into the centre of the earth. I believed I was peering into the realm of the dead, and seeing the horrid phantasms of demons, he later said of the experience. Terrifying as it was, his time in the crater had given him a sneak peek into the domain of a very physical underworld. Over the following years, Kircher went on to develop his theory that the very core of the earth was a great ball of inner fire which bled away through vein-like rivers and oceans to the surface of the earth where the flames burst out into the open through volcanic openings. He also believed there to be a great whirlpool at the North Pole that sucks cold water into the earth, where it filtered down through the earth's interior, expelling it back out into the oceans at the Southern Pole. It was a system that, for Kircher, firmly explained oceanic currents, tides, and precisely why the oceans never froze. The theories of Halley and Kircher can quickly be chalked up to pseudoscience today, but back in the 17th century, what they were proposing was not entirely out of character for contemporary scientists of the day. On the cusp of scientific enlightenment, science in the late 17th century clashed with the existing Christian worldview and attempts to reconcile new developments in understanding with the biblical explanations of nature would lead to some fairly surreal theories gaining significant airtime. Ultimately, 
both Halley and Kircher were proved wrong relatively quickly, though Halley would not live to see it. Dying in 1742, he also missed the prophesied return visit of the comet that he had earlier observed, which was sighted back in the sky on Christmas Day of 1758, exactly the year that he had predicted. One year later, it was renamed Halley's Comet, becoming one of the most well-known bodies outside of astrological circles. For a while after their death, theories of a hollow Earth largely took a back seat, as knowledge of the natural sciences boomed and some of the most grand questions of life on Earth were toppled by a new breed of scientists that developed theories based on rigorous discourse and scientific method. The 19th century, however, saw the introduction of the Industrial Revolution, and with it, a new willingness to believe in the impossible. Captain John Cleve Sims Jr. was born in New Jersey in 1780. As a child, he grew up in relative comfort, gaining an education and absorbing himself in travel fiction novels. In 1808, he married Mary Ann Lockwood, a widow with six children, and settled down to further extend the family, the couple having another four children together. The son of a judge and Revolutionary War veteran, he joined the army for himself as a captain in early 1812, just months before the outbreak of war with Britain, in which he fought on the western frontier, serving with distinction and picking up Spanish and French in the process. He would have got through the war completely unscathed if it wasn't for a duel with a fellow American, Lieutenant Marshall, which he instigated after he found out that Marshall had suggested he was no gentleman. In the standoff, Sims managed to shoot Marshall through the hip, but not before Marshall had fired his own revolver, sending a ball through the crutch of Sims's pants, striking him in the wrist. A short bout of infection and dysentery later, Sims was back on his feet, but his wrist never fully healed. The duel had done wonders for his relationship with Marshall, however, who he later befriended. After the war, Sims moved to the booming frontier town of St. Louis. In the years directly following the fighting, St. Louis grew at a frightening rate as people stopped in the town on their travels west and more often than not wound up staying, seeking some of the explosive profits. Sims gave the town a good go himself, working as a trader supplying the US Army, but never really managed to get the business too far off the ground. Sims wasn't only interested in trading though, and in the early months of 1818 he began working on his exciting new venture, an expedition that would bring him everlasting fame and fortune. He drafted it all out into a small pamphlet named Circular No. 1, which he printed 500 times and distributed to academies, societies and colleges right across the United States, and even to some lucky letterboxes in Europe. It was a bold mission statement that read, To all the world, I declare the earth is hollow and habitable within, containing a number of solid concentric spheres, one within the other, and that is open at the poles 12 or 16 degrees. I pledge my life in support of this truth and am ready to explore the hollow if the world will support and aid me in the undertaking. Cleve Simmons of Ohio, late captain of infantry. NB, I have ready for the press a treatise on the principles of matter wherein I show proofs of the above positions, account for various phenomena and disclose Dr. Darwin's golden secret. My terms are the patronage of this and the new worlds. I dedicate to my wife and her 10 children I select Dr. S. L. Mitchell, Sir H. Davy, and Baron Alex de Humboldt as my protectors. I ask 100 brave companions, well equipped, to start from Siberia in the fall season with reindeer and sleighs on the ice of the frozen sea, 
I engage we find a warm and rich land, stocked with thrifty vegetables and animals if not men, on reaching one degree northward of latitude 62. We will return in the succeeding spring. Somewhat out of left field, Sims's great declaration wasn't as universally accepted as he thought it would be, with some calling the pamphlet the wild effusion of a disordered brain. But his theory was much more than that. Inspired by the explorers and adventure writers of the day, Sims had developed his theory without the backing of any formal geological training. In fact, his theories predated the installation of geology as an area for academic study in America by almost 30 years. By 1820, his expedition had failed to get off the ground, however, much like his trading business. So he travelled to Newport in Kentucky and worked on further developing and promoting his theory of a hollow earth. Working from a contemporary theory that the rings of Saturn were the remains of a hollow shell that had once surrounded the planet, Sims developed his theory based on the idea that all planets were built on a similar structure, including the Earth. In a strange mashup between Kircher and Halley's theories, Sims concluded that the Earth had a huge gaping hole at the northern pole, which served as an entrance to a hollow core, filled with at least five concentric spheres, with each one having its own polar hole, an atmosphere with both the concave and convex surfaces being habitable. In Sims' theory, if you sailed far enough into the hole, you would eventually find yourself on the concave interior of the Earth's surface. Sims also tossed out Newtonian laws of gravity, preferring his own explanation, whereby gravity was turned into a pushing force exerted by a mystical weather. If much of this sounds like wild fantasy, then it will likely not come as too much of a surprise that Sims also spent his time in Kentucky writing a fiction novel which he published under the pen name of Captain Adam Seaborn titled Simsonia, A Voyage of Discovery. Sims's novel told the story of an explorer undertaking a voyage into a hollow earth that was populated by giant terrapins and five-foot-tall, 200-year-old, white-haired, vegetarian, human-like beings that lived in a communal utopia. As the tale unfolds, the truth is revealed that humans on Earth are actually descendants of the criminal beings that had failed to live up to the utopian standards and had been exiled to a northern island. Eventually, these banished wanderers had managed to walk all the way out of the open pole and wound up populating the surface of the Earth. Of course, humans being descendants from exiled criminals, the novel was also an attempt to explain all of society's ills. In a fantastic display of blowing his own horn, a large portion of the story was also dedicated to the sublime theory of Sims's polar holes. For the most part, it was little more than an insight into one of Sims's bizarre fever dreams of the expedition that he so longed to organise. Unfortunately for Sims, this was not likely to happen anytime soon. Despite a renewed interest in polar exploration, the British Royal Navy in particular showed a strong interest in the discovery of a northern passage. No expedition for Sims was forthcoming. By 1820, Sims was largely seen as something of a deluded crackpot but he was convinced it was all the natural rejection of his maverick theories which he was sure were true. The confidence in his theories was clear to see from his original pamphlet, within which he selected three renowned scientists to accompany him on his expedition as protectors, two of which wrote him off completely, whilst one, Dr Mitchell, congratulated him on his originality but showed no enthusiasm for following him into the northern unknowns. Nevertheless, Sims hardly saw this as much of a setback and instead 
embarked on a national tour where he lectured his theory and attempted to drum up excitement and enthusiasm for his dream expedition, the proposal of which he continually submitted to Congress to repeated knockbacks. One review of his lecture noted Sims's poor delivery and called the subject illogical, confused and dry. The natural historian Thomas Lay, who spent some time travelling with Sims in 1823, was similarly bemused by his trailmate. The partial insanity of this man is of a singular nature. It has caused him to pervert to the support of an evidently absurd theory all the facts which, by close study, he has been able to collect from a vast number of authorities. He appears conversant with every work of travels from Hearns to Humboldt's, and there is not a fact to be found in these which he does not manage with considerable ingenuity to bring to the support of his favourite theory. Upon other subjects, he talks sensibly, and as a well-informed man. In listening to the exposition of the concavity of our globe, we felt that interest which is inevitably awakened by the aberration of an unregulated mind, possessed probably of a capacity too great for the narrow sphere in which it was doomed to act. Sims's fate was bound to change, however. And if nothing else, his is a story that perseverance can pay off. In 1824, while still on the lecture circuit, he met a newspaper editor named Jeremiah Reynolds in Ohio. Reynolds had been running a local rag named the Wilmington Spectator, but after seeing Sims lecture his theory one night, decided immediately to fold the whole thing and join him on his fantastic voyage of discovery. Fortunately for Sims, Reynolds' enthusiasm was also met by his charisma and ability to speak to a crowd. Where Sims had so failed to connect and excite his audiences in town now, Reynolds excelled at wowing the punters. The two paired up, with Reynolds signing on as a co-lecturer, and in the same year, Congress gave Sims' his latest expedition proposal for him to join a Russian expedition, the Green Light, though they fell short of offering any funding for the adventure, and Sims was woefully short of funding it for himself. Just when things seemed to be taking a turn for the better, Sims and Reynolds fell out, and shortly after, Sims fell ill, forcing him to abandon the lecture circuit and part ways with Reynolds, who went on alone, leaving Sims to return home. For Reynolds, things seemed to continue to go quite well. He slowly began moving away from Sims's original theory and began promoting the interior of the earth from a commercial perspective which, combined with Reynolds' naturally exuding charisma, did manage to ensnare the attention of a few wealthy backers who were interested in financing an expedition to the Poles. Reynolds organised the whole trip and set sail aboard a pair of ships on October 1829. Unfortunately, the crew he had hired were less enthusiastic about discovering a utopian land of natural riches and instead decided to abandon Reynolds along with his wealthy backer in a frozen patch of land before heading back to warmer climes where they used their stolen ships to take up piracy. Reynolds took the opportunity to begin his career as an explorer and eventually hitched a ride back to America in 1832 aboard the USS Potomac. And though he spent much of the rest of his life adventuring and exploring around the globe, he slowly withdrew from his search for the hollow earth. Reynolds' expedition was sadly missed entirely by Sims, who after returning home due to ill health, passed away earlier the same year that Reynolds set sail, aged only 48 years old. His theory would not die with him, however, and one of his sons, Americus Sims, took on his father's mantle, promoting Sims' hollow earth theory and even publishing a book about it almost 50 years later, titled The Sims' Theory of Concentric Spheres. And though the theories met much, if not more, of the same derision as when it was originally proposed, 
it did hit the public just as the crest of a wave of utopian adventure fiction was just about to break, fueling the imaginations of writers like Jules Verne, who had undoubtedly been aware of Sims when writing his infamous Journey to the Centre of the Earth. Still, as much as the late 19th century and early 20th century was a period filled with grand fictions of adventure and exploration, things quietened down for serious believers in hollow earth theory. One man, however, was busy reading this fiction and playing around with electricity, a pastime that would, he discovered, show him the true path in life and open up a new era for the hollow earth. Cyrus Teed was a big enthusiast of the natural sciences. Born in 1839 in Trent Creek in Delaware County, New York, he was the second son in a family of eight children. After leaving school at the age of 11, he defied his parents' wishes for him to become a Baptist minister and instead left home to go and work for the construction of the Erie Canal. By the age of 20, his goals had become somewhat more lofty and he decided construction was out and medicine was in. He travelled to Utica, New York, to study with his uncle, Dr. Samuel F. Teed, a science-based medical practitioner. Shortly after, he married his second cousin, Fidelia, had a child and moved to New York City, where they planned to settle while Cyrus continued his medical studies. This was interrupted briefly whilst he served in the infantry for a year before being discharged following a bout of sunstroke. He completed his studies in 1868, graduating from the Electric Medical College of the City of New York and joined his uncle in his alternative medicine-based practice above a tavern in the city where they practiced an early form of electric shock treatment. Cyrus built a laboratory next to his house where he could experiment with electricity, as well as his newfound passion of alchemy, an area which he seemed to be making great strides, especially with his claims of transmuting lead into gold and his discovery of the Philosopher's Stone. The same night that he achieved, by his own admission, such a magnitudinous result, he also had an experience so profound that it would go on to change the path of his life forever. The clock had just struck midnight when Cyrus finished busily scrawling the secrets for creating gold into his journal. He was sitting in the warm glow of the lamplight that flickered on the walls, contemplating his great achievement, when he had a new epiphany. If he had managed to unlock the ultimate alchemical mysteries of the elements, then why not the secret to eternal life too? I bent myself to the task of projecting into tangibility the creative principle. Suddenly, I experienced a relaxation at the occiput, or back part of the brain, and a peculiar buzzing tension at the forehead, or syncoput. Succeeding this was a sensation as of a phoradic battery of the softest tension about the organs of the brain called the lyra, crura, pinealis, and conarium. There gradually spread from the centre of my brain to the extremities of my body, and, apparently to me, into the auric sphere of my being, miles outside of my body, a vibration so gentle, soft and dulciferous, that I was impressed to lay myself upon the bosom of this gently oscillating ocean of magnetic and spiritual ecstasy. I realised myself gently yielding to the impulse of reclining upon this vibratory sea of this, my newly found delight. My every thought but one had departed from the contemplation of earthly and material things, I had but a lingering, vague remembrance of natural consciousness and desire. In the impulse of that last remnant of material thought, I put forth, as I supposed, my material arm and hand to experience some familiar touch, but there was no response. I felt for my body, but no tangible sensation answered to the touch of what I still supposed to be my physical hand. 
I started in alarm, for I felt that I had departed from all material things, perhaps forever. Has my thirst for knowledge consumed my body, was my question, and am I now to lose myself in the absorption of my identity and the obliteration of my consciousness, as well as having lost my physical structure? Again, I stretched forth my hand. I, both my arms were raised by the effort of my will, and dropped to where my body should have been, but I found it not. Failing to meet response through the special sense of touch, I bethought me of my eyes, which for the time I had forgotten I possessed. I opened them, as I supposed, with the utmost ease, but saw no material object. Naturally, this was all very astonishing for Cyrus, whose earlier achievements now seemed to be utterly meaningless in the wake of this new state of being that he had discovered. After becoming enveloped in an aura of dazzling light, he was greeted by a goddess who bestowed upon him a whole host of convoluted pseudo-scientific babble including the knowledge that life exists in a cycle of reincarnation, that humans should live in communal societies, that the Bible is symbolic and requires a prophet to interpret it for the people, and that the earth was a hollow sphere and contrary to just about everything, we were living on the inside, concave surface, the sun, moon and stars we see in the sky being a mere reflection of the real thing, shining in through the holes at the poles that were remarkably similar to Sims's holes. Cyrus Teed immediately set about promoting these ideas, which he dubbed a system of religio-science to his medical patients, but most did not seem to be too interested, and before long his practice quickly slid downhill. By the 1870s, after a string of practices around New York that he had opened and promptly failed, he had moved inland to the town of Moravia in New York, where his parents had a small mop-making business and Cyrus joined them to help the family. If the invitation from his parents had been an effort to dissuade him from these new spiritual leanings, it failed miserably, and Teed continued to seek out followers of his hollow-earth philosophies that he had now branded as Qureshianity, renaming himself Koresh in the process. Inspired by the dearth of spiritual-based communal societies that had become something of a trend throughout the mid-19th century, Cyrus attempted to start his own that only managed to annoy the locals, and so, realising that his ideas were just too big for this small town, he abandoned his wife, who was at this point debilitated by illness, and moved his fledgling community to Syracuse, where he founded the Syracuse Institute of Progressive Medicine. Once again, he found it difficult to spread his message without alienating more or less the entire population, and so, by the mid-1880s, he had returned to New York City and moved into an apartment with his sister, cousin, and two other women who were keen followers of Christianity. All told, Teed's great message was a pretty sorry story, but things were about to take a turn for the better, and when Teed gave a speech in a Chicago convention for the National Association of Mental Science in 1886, he got the big breakthrough that he'd been aiming for. Sensing that the people of Chicago were more welcoming to his message, he moved to the city and established the World College of Life, where he taught people on the subject of brain and soul therapy. The Guiding Star publishing business was set up shortly after that, which Teed used to publish his Koreshian literature, and shortly after that, a full-blown church, the Assembly of the Covenant, was established, and somewhat amazingly, gained a considerable following. With his doctrine focusing heavily on personal immortality, equality and a god that was both male and female at once, his church hoovered up a considerable number of women, most of which were from the educated middle classes 
and many of which otherwise found themselves spending life, mostly at home, trying to find satisfaction as housewives. Growing to over 100 followers, Teed centred his new community around an eight-acre compound that included a mansion, seven cottages, vast gardens filled with flower beds and trees, and a reclaimed barn that he used to house the printing business. Riding the wave of the momentum, however, Teed grew tired of the estate, and in 1893 he left it on a journey to seek out a place to build his new Jerusalem from scratch, or what he called the Vitellus of the Cosmogenic Egg. In Florida, he met Gustav Damkola, an old widower who was blind in one eye, whose wife had died giving birth to his only son. Gustav had read some of the Cresciati pamphlets and caught wind of Teed, sending him a letter alerting him to the fact that he just so happened to be the owner of 320 acres of fine, thoroughly overgrown Floridian land in need of a little renovation. Teed bought 300 acres for the princely sum of $200 and then returned to Chicago to collect his flock. Clearing the ground and building their new houses took some time, but Teed had huge plans for the place, which he hoped would be the guiding star city of the world, with a population of over 10 million. It would, he wrote, be a communist utopia with no money, pollution, or, so it seemed, any sense of reality. Quips aside, they did manage to build a sprawling hamlet that managed to reach a population of around 200 and included over 30 houses, its own small sawmill, a publishing house, a riverside amphitheatre and an art house, as well as a large three-storey dining hall. With the town built, Teed busied himself with publishing works concerning Christianity, along with carrying out experiments that would prove his rather eccentric view on cosmology. One experiment involved recruiting a significant number of the commune to help measure the curvature of the Earth in order to prove that we were living on a concave surface. Using the large flat stretches of the Gulf Coast beaches and a device divined by Professor Ulysses Grant Morrow, a fellow Koreshian, named the Rectilineator, Teed and his crew moved what was effectively a large T-square in several sections for four miles along the beach, measuring an invisible straight line as they went to show that it would eventually get closer to the ground as the ground curved upwards, and thus proving that the surface of the earth was concave. Details of their findings were published in a book titled The Cellular Cosmology, utilising Teed's particular brand of verbose flannel that did more to confuse the average reader than prove any science. Unfortunately for Teed, however, his successes were drawing attention from more than a few doubters. Surprisingly, and rather unfortunately for Teed, one such doubter turned out to be Damkola, who was now having second thoughts about selling all his land. He took Teed to court and tried to sue to get it all back, but eventually ended up settling out of court for the return of half. The Koreshians also had new neighbours, and unsurprisingly, their views failed to align. Although this had less to do with Teed's bizarre hollow earth doctrine and more to do with the fact that their neighbours were the Order of the Crystal Sea, a fruitarian community led by the self-styled Princess Editha Lolita Ludwig, an ex-Koreshian who did her best to utilise the local media to bring down Cyrus Teed. Despite her best efforts, she failed to outright destroy the Koreshians, though their scuffles undoubtedly damaged the reputation of the Order, scuppering Teed's efforts to get involved in the local politics. All good things have to come to an end, however, and December 22nd, 1908, proved to be a difficult time for the Christians, when, like with so many cults, their immortal leader had the indecency to pass away. 
For three days, Cyrus Teed's body lay on the table of his manor house whilst his followers waited for him to spring back alive. Eventually, the Florida heat put paid to rest the idea of that happening and the health officers were called in to remove the body for burial. Teed's death signalled the beginning of the end for the Crescians, whose order slowly dwindled until 1961 when the village was handed over to the state by the last remaining four members. The 20th century had paved the way for hollow earth theory to travel full circle and find itself back firmly in the realm of myth, legend and fiction, especially with the rise of utopian fiction and low-brow serialised science fiction. Science had triumphed and several expeditions to both poles, including flights in the 1920s that passed directly over the centre points, proved once and for all that the theory of Sims's holes and Cyrus Teed were categorically incorrect. Like all good conspiracies, there were rumours after the Second World War that Hitler had read some Koreshian literature and become engrossed in the idea that the surface of the earth was concave himself. Stories tell of his order to send men to the Baltic island of Hogan, where if the Koreshian cosmology was correct, would have served as the perfect spot to spy on Britain, simply by using a telescope and looking out across the curve of the earth. How much of this is actually true, and how much just plays off the ideas of the Nazi relationship with the occult and the fact that certain fringe pseudo-scientific beliefs, including Teed's Christianity, had made a half-hearted comeback in 1930s Germany, is unclear. Over the years since the Second World War, several attempts have been made to reignite hollow earth theory, with Dr Raymond Bernard perhaps coming the closest to gaining widespread notoriety. Bernard's 1963 publication, The Hollow Earth, was an exhaustive mashup of hollow earth theories from across the centuries and detailed stories that the explorer, Admiral Richard E. Byrd, who had flown over the poles in 1926 and 1929, had in fact disappeared into the vast openings, which he proved by saying that the poles simply do not exist. For further proof, he suggested that all flying saucers originated from the interior of the planet where an advanced race lived in a utopian wonderland, where the fear of nuclear annihilation was entirely absent, reflecting the Cold War anxieties of the time. Bernard was, himself, as kooky as his book. Born in America, he had travelled to Germany to study biochemistry before returning to Florida to sell his patented medicine and champion the ideals of fruitarianism and breatharianism until the FDA charged him with fraud and shut him down. Nevertheless, he went on writing, mainly on fringe subjects like eugenics and occult philosophy. His grand theory on the hollow earth was his masterpiece, despite being an utterly absurd collection of confused thoughts. Still today, hollow earth theory continues as strong as it ever has, ebbing and flowing between pseudoscience and straight-up mythology and fiction. Across thousands of years, hundreds of cultures and countless generations Stories of a mythological realm of the dead, or a utopian world reflecting the society it was conceived in, never fail to stir imaginations across the world, and whilst modern-day hollow-earth advocates might not quite garner the same respect as their 17th century counterparts, their theories remain as wild as the fever dreams of any 19th century cult leader. Despite being firmly relegated to the realms of fundamentalists, Godzilla, or online conspiracy backwaters, It's a theory that shows remarkable perseverance, despite being roundly debunked time and time again. In its latest guise, the holes at the poles are now far too crass an idea, instead making way for a much smaller opening, hidden away somewhere out of sight, just waiting for some intrepid explorer to stumble on it and disappear 
deep into the underworld, never to return. So that was the story of, well, the history of the hollow earth theory. Yeah, some little bits to chat about that after these short advert breaks. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Having. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Welcome back. So yeah, that, that, that that's the history of, well, sort of like a, a brief history of hollow earth theory. And believe me, there's a lot more to it. I thought I, I sort of wanted to focus on um, the sort of bigger names, and especially sort of Edmund Halley, considering he's like a legit scientist that, that's really well known for obviously Halley's comet and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I wanted to sort of focus on those guys, and then of course on um, Cyrus Teed because he's just well, he, he he's an interesting fella if if ever I heard of one. His whole Christianity is a pretty wild read, to be honest. It, I, I would recommend if you fancy to reading something fairly surreal and don't mind sort of uh, wading through some pretty heavy language, uh, I recommend a book called The Cellular Cosmology that he wrote, um, which is very funny. I wouldn't read it all, but have a look for it up online and, and sort of have a skim um, because it's very funny. He makes up words pretty much as he goes along, but they're, they're basically like the root, of the word is is a real word so it's it's quite easy to understand because because you you can kind of follow along just by reading the roots of the words but then he just adds on like all these extra bits at the end to make them sound smart i guess so so yeah he he comes up with all these absolutely bizarre sentences that that otherwise don't like you know don't make much sense on the surface um it, but they're definitely a good laugh to read um but otherwise, um, yeah, I thought it was a, a good fun episode. I, I I found it really interesting, personally, um, reading like the... And I didn't spend too much time on it in the episode, I suppose. But the, the, for me, I've, I say I found a lot of fun reading um, the uh, like the mythological accounts. So like um, going back to like the ancient Egyptian accounts of, of what they're... What, like, you know, basically this underworld and stuff like that. You, as someone who sort of plays a bit of D&D, uh, I just couldn't get the Underdark out of my head the whole time, pretty much. Especially, um, you know, from the Egyptian one. And in fact, I mean, you, you read it and you can see how much, like, I, I guess, uh, from these ideas that, the, you know, the original D&D writers who, who came up with the Underdark, I guess that's where they pulled from, right? But uh, I didn't realise, actually, how um, sort of serious and far back it went like obviously i knew of jules verne and stuff like that and i and obviously okay so jules verne is fictional but 
he he you know the, obviously he sort of pulled his ideas from these sort of uh, scientists that went before him which I, I sort of vaguely knew but i didn't realize they went you know that i didn't realize they actually held some traction um and what I thought was really interesting, actually, was that the first guy, you know, Halley, uh, sort of one of the first guys to come up with the idea. I, I like the fact that even he himself, when he sort of presented it, was like, I, I know this idea is probably going to be difficult to swallow for most people. You know, he, he even presented it. And, and I think what I found like interesting about that was that it was such a time, that early uh, Enlightenment period where they were almost like just tossing out theories, you know, like, like like the best theories were just thinking outside the box. And you can see why like so many of those uh, sort of scientists now look back upon and often when we sort of imagine them or sort of caricature them or, or put them into stories or characters in films or whatever, whenever they're basically sort of shown, they're quite often shown as like eccentrics, you know, like crazy wild people with like, white frizzy hair and stuff and it's because essentially they they were all kind of thinking outside the box and that was all it really took and that even they were sort of like you know i'm, I'm not really sure about this but i'm just going to chuck it out there and, and that's quite fascinating you know it's, it's a it's obviously not a very um scientific way of doing things but it's a really fascinating way of doing things and back then i guess it, it you know it had some credibility because it seemed to it seemed to me that for a while there they were they, they were doing a lot spending a lot of time looking at like causality and, and sort of like like, like so for, so for Halley for example he came up with these ideas um, more based on the fact that he saw the magnetic poles move and so he thought that there was perhaps something inside moving around it and of course a big part of his theory was based on the density of the moon relative to the Earth which had, Isaac Newton had come up with that were actually like really far out like completely wrong. And so um, this gave him like the, the initial idea that it that it that it might be uh, hollow. And you look at Kircher's ideas. I mean, Kircher was a, an incredibly like eccentric guy, absolute legend. Um, but I mean, you look at his ideas, and and they're actually not that far off what you know our understanding now. Um, yeah, they were still pretty out, but but they were getting close to something of a truth. You know, um, obviously it gets really out there when we get to like Cyrus Teed. And and something that I find really funny actually um, is that his so so he was had this laboratory where he like tested a lot of electricity and stuff like that and and a, some a, a few a few quite a few people have sort of put forward the theory that his experience uh, having this like meeting this goddess who told him you know all of this big enlightenment you know this big epiphany about um, Christianity a lot of people uh, credit that to him electrocuting himself <laughs> and like either having like a near death experience or just sort of frying his brain like with a big jolt and and kind of like maybe knocking him out or whatever and and then him coming around and having this like um this this great epiphany that then sent him off on this massive religious uh, adventure but uh, I, I find that quite funny that he probably just electrocuted himself <laughs> And all of it was just based on on nothing, um, but it, but it's really funny. I mean, his idea that that we're actually living that we're actually living on, on like a concave rather than convex uh, surface is, is, I mean, quite something. <laughs> How he he actually um, so everything is explained, but it, but it's not as I've sort of mentioned and and I mentioned in the episode, his writings were completely bonkers. 
but they're they're also just really convoluted and and over the top and like a super verbose and, and and wordy and and just completely uh, ridiculous. So he he came up with all these ideas and he about this the concave earth and and although he sort of proves all the ways that the the the, the sun and the stars can be reflections and we can be living inside the earth. But none of it actually makes sense. It's, it's, it's like it just proves it to itself. Of course, yeah, it's proof if you believe the core concepts in the first place. But but if you want to take a step further and then say, well, what about these core concepts? How do you prove them? Obviously, it all completely fell apart instantly. So yeah, but it but it is very funny. So yeah, anyway, I, there's not much else to talk about really. It's just a, a good fun episode. Um, I I thought it was really interesting, and I, I, I've kind of wanted to look into it for a while. So yeah, and I, I do like doing these kind of like brief kind of overview history of episodes every now and then. So I hope you enjoyed it. Um, if not, well, there'll be another episode in a couple of weeks. So maybe you'll enjoy that one more. Uh, feel free to write to me at any time. Uh, you can do so. Contact at darkhistories.com is the email address. You can also uh, find all the links to social media in the show notes or on darkhistories.com, which is where you'll also be able to find ways that you can support or join the discord community or you know really just all sorts of anything um so yeah if you'd like to do any of that hit up the show notes or darkhistories.com otherwise thanks very much for listening take care sleep tight